it wasn't so much that Joan London was the new host of the show. I mean, fine, but that wasn't the story. The story was that a woman with a brand new baby was being allowed to bring this child to work so that she could accommodate breastfeeding the baby and being on national television. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and influential guests who are creating their legacies and contributing to the greater good. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager, and this podcast is my way of bringing some light into the world, which is feeling pretty dark and broken right now. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, a previous guest on Zestful Aging, and Judy is also an eating disorder treatment specialist who supervised me in Ann Arbor in the early 90s. And little did I know that 20 years later, we would collaborate on a very different kind of project. Find out more about Judy's music on judybanker.com. I know that everyone is feeling really stressed and anxious right now. We're all unsettled and feel out of control. So I created a free download for you for maintaining mental health based on my 30 years as a psychotherapist. Um, Just go to ZestfulAging.com and it is all yours. It was so fun talking to Joan London, a woman who's had such a positive influence on so many people for so long. There were so many topics, though, that I I knew I wouldn't get to, but I wanted to talk to her about what it was like caring for her newborn on the set of Good Morning America and how she was able to pull that off. It seems like that would be nearly impossible. Um, I also wanted to talk to her about the ageism that was certainly going on when she was a host. Uh, That's something that's very important to me and something that of course we cover a lot on the podcast and then the you know the requirements for her um, how she looked she talked about her shoes her hairdo you know was she supposed to get back to her pre-pregnancy body weight and wondered how she managed that and then of course her very public breast cancer journey and I was excited to talk to her about what that was like and what motivated her to be so open about it. But then, of course, there were other things I wanted to talk about, her two sets of twins and how she's become such an advocate for women and health. So there was a lot to think about, a lot to choose from, and it was just so much fun to have so many things to choose from, to pick from, and and to explore with her. Well, I've got my loyal Jack Russell Sparky right by my side, and I admit to giving him a mom haircut, so he's looking a little funny right now, but let's begin. We have a super special interview for you today. We're going to be speaking with the one and only Joan London, who helped wake up millions of Americans as the host of Good Morning America for two decades. Uh, As a journalist, a busy working mom, and part of the sandwich 
which generation, Joan knows about the realities of being an aging woman in our society today. And we talk a lot about that on Zestful Aging. She's a leading health and wellness advocate speaking around the country about women's health and how to age successfully. And her latest book on the topic is called Why Did I Come Into This Room? A Candid Conversation About Aging. And it's being called her most candid, raw, and funny book to date. Welcome to the program, Joan. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. And you know, I've been thinking about all of the things that you've done. And it's like kind of like for me, a kid in the candy store. There's so many things to talk about. I am also a breast cancer survivor, and I wanted to talk to you about chemo. But let's put that aside for now, because I was thinking about what it must have been like to be a new mom and work on Good Morning America, knowing just a little bit about how early you must have had to get up every day. Talk about what that was like for you. Well, you know, I was working at um, Eyewitness News Channel 7 in New York as a reporter and weekend anchor um, when Good Morning America first approached me to do some stories for them. Uh, And uh, so I started working for them and I lived right across the street from Channel 7. And it's a oh. good thing because I would run from from the <laughs> studio. I was back and forth between these two. So I'd get up in the morning and go in really early and oh. do a spot on Good Morning America because, of course, I wanted them to like me. And then I would go to, my, uh, to the uh, assignment editor, and he'd send me, you know, who knows, in a helicopter out into Long Island to do a story. Uh, you know, about displaced people from a fire. Like, it was just such a crazy life. And and then there's always a little jealousy between network and local. And half the time, if local knew I was on the network in the morning, they'd then say, well, we need that story to be on the 11 o'clock news also. So, I mean, oh. I would, but it was, but it was an in- exciting time. I was 26 years old. Uh, 27 years old. I guess I started doing pieces for GMA when I was 27. And um, and then one day I was sitting in my little cubby in the newsroom getting my story ready for the six o'clock news and my phone rang and it was my agent and he said, I just got the offer in from ABC for you to be the co-host of Good Morning America. Now that had been kind of coming. Um, But I said, I'll have to call you after the show because I got minutes to finish this. And a few minutes later, my phone rang again. And it was my gynecologist telling me that I was pregnant with my first child. Oh, my God. What a day. I mean, it's within 30 minutes. It's delight and dilemma. And I I called my attorney back and said, you know, I had been trying for a while, but I just found out that I'm pregnant. And he said, don't worry. Recently, they passed laws, because this was 1979, they passed Uh laws that once they've offered you the job, Uh they can't take it back because you're pregnant. And quite honestly, I think that they weren't, the way they looked at it, it's like, how did I get ABC to do all these things? It was just because they, um, the David Hartman was the anchor, uh, Sandy Hill was the co-host, and the two of them did not get along. And she was constantly out on the road just to be away. And 
um, they had different people substitute hosting, like me, and they saw the chemistry, and they just wanted me on that show. Mm-hmm. So Pregnant or not. So I went away. Um, I stayed on pregnant, like right up toward the end. Then I left, and they said, we want you back for the September fall rating season. You know, when everybody starts their new their new fall season. And I said, okay, well, my little Jamie was born July 4th, Fourth of July baby. Mm. And they said, fine, can you be back on the 28th of August? I was like, <laughs> okay. So she's, I said, well, she's only going to be about eight weeks old, seven, eight weeks old, and I'm breastfeeding. Mm. And they said, okay, fine, bring her. I said, okay. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I'm going to need a little space. I'm going to need like a little somewhere where I can put a crib and like have a, you know, a nanny come in and meet me there. And I mean, so I can go in the studio. They said, no problem. We'll give you the dressing room next year's. I mean, they just wanted to make that show work and happen. Mm-hmm. And and I was just putting one foot in front of the other because I'd never babysat. I didn't know anything about taking care of a baby. Oh my and now goodness. here I was going to start a national morning show with, and I mean, I, I used to scoop my little Jamie out of the crib very gingerly, very, so I wouldn't wake her and I'd lay her, I'd have like a, uh, something laid out on the changing table. I'd put her on it, try to change the diaper so I didn't wake her. And then I'd get in the car and I had this like 80 page script, you know, so I'd feed her on my right breast (laughs) for the first hour. And then on the left breast for the second hour, she kept falling asleep and I kept saying, no, you got to wake up. I got (laughs) to I got a show to do. I've got a show to do. So um, it was crazy, though. Like, I'd take her back to the office with me, and I had a little sign on the door that said, you know, um, mother breastfeeding, don't come in. But it was – sometimes I'd have to be on the phone doing things, and my assistant, who had also never changed a diaper before Jamie, um, she would take her out and walk her around the office. And it became a thing, like, when everybody was, like – just bogged down in work and having to try to get someone on the mm-hmm. phone to do the pre-interview. And here would come Elise with little baby Jamie and they'd say, oh, just what I needed, a Jamie fix. Oh my goodness. So you changed the culture. I really did. I- of that show. And in 1979, it was not, it was so different than it, it was is un- today. unheard of. I gotta, I'll give you one little story. The day, my first day. Um, they scheduled a press conference after the show. So they said, when the show ends, we're going to come in, we're going to put all these chairs, we're going to have a buffet set up back in the back, we're going to invite the press to come in. Um, And they all came in, and David Hartman and I sat up front. Now, before, the PR head of PR and a few of the vice presidents took me aside and said, listen, don't talk about the fact that your baby is upstairs. They won't think that you're going to be capable. They won't think that you're going to have your mind on the job. Just don't say anything about the baby. <clears throat> so now I, David does his little introduction of me. I do my little hellos, and I open it up for questions. Time Magazine, first question, stands up. We understand you brought your baby to work. How did ABC <laughs> accommodate that? And I'm, and I'm sitting there like, what do I do? I can't not answer I can't not answer Time Magazine. And I kind of look in the back of the room where all the executives are sitting and they're kind of like, uh, with their hands in there, okay. Mm. So, you know, I tell, I talk to them while I got it put in my contract that I could bring my daughter to work because I'm breastfeeding. This is at a time where you couldn't 
I don't know if you could say breastfeeding mm-hmm. on television. And they said, well, what if, he, what if you have to go on the road? Well, I've got it in my contract that if I go on the road, the baby can go with me as long as she's breastfeeding. And now Newsweek magazine, next hand, next guy up. Tell mm-hmm. us, I mean, were these, are these written into your contract at ABC? Like wow. all they cared about. It wasn't so much that Joan London was the new host of the show. I mean, fine. But that wasn't the story. The story was that a woman with a brand new baby was being allowed to bring this child to work so that she could accommodate breastfeeding the baby and being on national television. And that's incredible. And, you know, about eight minutes into the interview, the head of the PR department, a guy named John Goodman, I'm still good friends with him, but the guy who had told me, don't mention the baby. All of a sudden, Mm -hmm. I see him come in the door of the studio, and he's got Jamie in his arms, my little baby Mm -hmm. Jamie. And he's Mm -hmm. looking at me, and he's looking at me, and he's pointing to Jamie, and he's pointing at me. And he starts walking up the center aisle, and he hands me Jamie. And I'm telling you, Nicole, the picture on the covers of every magazine, whether it was Ladies Home Journal or Time or Newsweek, Mm -hmm. every picture was me with Jamie in my arms. Because that, that was the story. Do you think they they started seeing this as an opportunity for them, a PR opportunity to say, look how progressive we are? Or that wasn't really a thing in 1979? No, I think when they started seeing that my office was deluged with, <laughs> with requests for interviews, Ladies Home Journal, Good Housekeeping, Red Book, every magazine <laughs> wanted their interview. I was on the cover of one of those magazines every few months, and uh-huh. all of the interviews were about that. And when they started seeing the mail come in from the general public, because remember, no emails back then. People, right, people, right. People wrote letters, and they started to get it, and they started to see um, that everybody there was an incredible ability for the public to relate to me. What impact did that have on you? I mean, you were a young woman. Uh, What impact did it have on you starting right out of the gate as a culture changer? Well, you know, to be very honest, I don't know if I thought of myself as that at the time. I I never considered myself like, you know, you know, burning my bra and all like all the (laughs) all the women on campuses during the 60s and 70s. I was just living my life. And putting kind of putting one foot in front of the other, and I don't I don't think I actually saw it as that. Even though I was being interviewed like every constantly being interviewed by everyone, everyone wanted to mm-hmm. talk about that story. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I I started to see it after a while, but it's really only in retrospect and hearing from people today that I fully came to understand how that chapter of my life and and that chapter of ABC, of 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 time for the public that mm-hmm. that had an amazing ripple effect all throughout corporate culture in America i used to get letters and people would say um, thank you for showing my my boss or my husband that as your belly gets bigger 
your brain does not get smaller. Oh, my goodness. That's right. And so I, I just have, you know, as somebody who's also had a baby, uh, you know, you're not at your necessarily your top endurance, sharpness, you know, there's sleep deprivation. Sometimes lactation doesn't go exactly as planned. Um, you know, it's a kind of a crapshoot, right? As a first time mom, how did you physically and emotionally do these two huge jobs as at the same time? I sometimes look back on it and think, well, that's not possible. And then I think, wait a minute. It, it obviously was because I did it. Uh-huh. I, I learned right away that it, when you breastfeed at night, you sweat, <laughs> mm-hmm. which means that every single morning you have to wash your hair again. <laughs> And then that's not something that's sort of you know widely known. Yeah, but and, oh, and, good. Okay. And I wake up at three. I used to wake up at three thirty in the morning. Oh, goodness. And um, I would put everything out. I would make the baby bag completely ready, and I would make put my satchel for my stuff together, and I would put my clothes out, literally in order, like bra and underpants on the top, <laughs> right down to the shoes. I would put the the same for Jamie because there could be no decision making in the morning. It had to, I did it all at night. And then I can tell you this one story. Um, I'm, I used to be in the middle of interviews and, you know, there's this leaking problem. There's leaking. There's totally I mean, I leakage. swear I knew when she was crying upstairs because my, when she was crying oh, upstairs, gosh. my boobs knew it, you know? Oh, and goodness. so one morning I was, I was interviewing, I don't know, some senator about um, then, uh, I think it was probably President Reagan's trickle-down economic theory. And all of a sudden, I began to experience inflation and trickle-down. Oh, my goodness. uh, In person. And and I could, thank God I had a, a, a blouse on that was kind of a silky blouse that it didn't really show, and it was a pattern. And but as soon as that interview was over, oh, I had to like get me a hair dryer oh. and so I could dry <laughs> off my clothes. And sure enough, oh, she was upstairs. God. And then when I had my my daughter Sarah, she was um, turned out to be upside down, and I knew it all the time. Um, I didn't get the little kicks up top where their little feet usually are, but I can tell you I was in the middle of an interview one day. I don't remember who I was interviewing, but I remember getting kicked in the crotch oh. so hard <laughs> that I it literally brought tears to my eyes. But, oh my. you know, it was it was quite, I mean, you know, I think back on it, I almost think like, how the hell did I do that? It's unbelievable. I think your youth might have helped, right? You didn't maybe know any better. So what what was it like? I'm just wondering, you know, being uh, such a public figure, was there pressure to look a certain way after you had the baby? Oh, was yes. Pressure to say, well, that's great, but, you know, now it's time to start. Well, they didn't have such smoothies back then, right? But was there pressure to get into your pre-pregnancy shape? And this kind sure. of thing? Sure. I mean, it was really hard, you know, you- I, they always wanted me back as soon as I would get back. Um, and so you come back, you know, before you really should. And it it was a lot. I mean, look, I mean, your looks and your shape 
and your hairstyle and your clothes are all so scrutinized all the time. I remember one day Charlie Gibson walked into my office and, you know, when we used to do a story or if we would do a debate, like maybe between um, uh, Eleanor Smeal and Phyllis Schlafly, you know, the head of now and the head of the, they just did a movie about Phyllis Schlafly about, <laughs> and so you'd, and our job was to, unlike today's media, our job was to be in the middle. And at the end of the interview, our goal was to not have the people who were at home watching us know which side we were on. That was, if we were successful, that's how it ended up. But you would get boxes and boxes of mail. And everybody would have their, you know, they watched through their own eyes. Like, you know, you were clearly on Phyllis Schlafly's house and if, oh, outside. Gosh. And if it wasn't for Eleanor Schmiel, you wouldn't have this job today. Blah, blah, oh, blah, blah. Goodness. So we were always curious as to which interviews elicited the most mail. So one day Charlie walks into my office and he was in like the little anti-office where my, my assistants were. And he says, um, oh, look at all those boxes of mail. Which interview elicited all that mail and this my assistant said oh no that's just about Joan's hair and what shoes she wore last week and he's like what because (laughs) you know he's a guy he never got any of that kind of feedback but I did and you know it's we live in a different world than the guys we just do um, and it's, do you remember that being hard for you or like, how did you navigate that? That's such a tremendous, reminds me of like Meghan Markle, you know, like, yeah. you can't, you know, it, you know, your eyeshadow was the source of an enormous debate. I mean, how does, you know, how does, how do you navigate that and try to keep your mental health stable? You know, you do have times where you say, Am I just not remembering that time that I signed a piece of paper that said every everything about my life is now up for public consumption and scrutiny? Like, I don't remember signing that piece of paper. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. fact is, is that seems to come with the job, whether you're an actress or, or a news personality. Um, and sometimes, I mean, I'll tell you one thing, sometimes when... We would be out and look to me, somebody coming up to me and even today and throwing their arms around me. Well, not during this pandemic, but uh, Mm -hmm. when I first got married, my mother-in-law would say, they're in your personal space. Doesn't that bother you? And I said, welcome to my world. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is my world. And no, it doesn't really bother me because it's how it reflects on how I was always, how I was on the air and how relatable I was and how comfortable people are with me that they come up to me they stop at my table I always used to say my kids are going to grow up with this warped sense of reality <laughs> they're going to think that everyone comes over to your table and stops and says hi and shakes your hand and they said when they when they grow up they're going to find out that that's actually not the way the world is but um you know for the most part it was always wonderful because we had this enormous audience out there you couldn't obviously couldn't see them but you knew they were there by the sheer numbers the ratings now today you have a it's completely different because they talk to you um and when facebook came out i was so excited because the hardest thing for me when i left gma was being cut off from my audience Uh, because i was cut off 
because there was no way for us to be connected. Then we got Facebook. And I mm. got onto Facebook and I had this flood of people coming back. I go, oh my God, you're here. And my husband says, you know, you're not going to be able to answer all of them. And I said, but I'm going to have a real good time trying because I was loving that I was reconnected with them. But when I, everywhere we would go, like Charlie and I in particular, we were, I don't know, we just had this, we, everybody reacted to Charlie and me like we were their cousins that they hadn't seen for a while or that it was not even a, it wasn't a, fam, a familiarity it was a familiarity. Mm-hmm. It was almost like you were a family member. Yes, and well, they, you're in there. They're watching yes. you in their pajamas. We are in there. <laughs> we were in their homes in the morning before yeah. they would not invite their best friend over. They didn't have their hair combed, the, uh-huh. their teeth brushed, and you know the kids were all like cranky and getting ready for school. And there we were, you know, right there in their homes. I have so many. I can't tell you how many times a guy has walked up to me and said. I woke up with you every morning, oh, and to goodness. which my husband will say, actually, I wake up with her every morning. <laughs> uh-huh. but, but it's really a wonderful, um, warm relationship that I have. It's not like some celebrities have with people today because they talk about their political uh, leanings or their religious leanings, and therefore half the world hates them and mm-hmm. the other I never we never got into any of it's that a I, different relationship it was yeah. very different and my relationship with the American public is like look my Facebook I've got almost a hundred thousand people they're all nice nobody ever oh. leaves me a nobody ever leaves me a nasty note and believe mm-hmm. me if somebody does like one day some guy said I don't like the way you're wearing your hair I think it makes you look older like 20 women jumped down his throat <laughs> Like, what's that's, wrong? that's great. Your protector. My protector. protector. I was like, what's wrong with you? She just went through chemo, for God's sakes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Hello, Zesties. I want to tell you about one of my all-time favorite exercise and stress reduction tools, which I am really relying on during this quarantine. But I've sung its praises for years. The benefits are seemingly endless. Uh, It's great for toning and strengthening muscles. It improves your lymph system, your metabolism. It helps with joint pain and balance. And it's even used by NASA astronauts because it's such an efficient way to exercise. And if you're older or you're worried about your balance, you can order a stabilizer bar to hang on to. I'm talking about my NEDAC Rebounder mini trampoline. I put on my music and I have my own dance party. Because for me, exercise needs to be fun and invigorating. Otherwise, I don't want to do it. Now is not the time for the philosophy of no pain, no gain, because we're in enough pain. This is a way to feel good and energized and have fun. It really does help mood as well. And I like that NEDAC is made in the USA and it is really solid. I've had mine for 15 years and it's still in great shape. The NEDAC Rebounder will help us get through this quarantine in better shape mentally and physically. 
And there's also a model that folds up if space is an issue. One of my clients puts it on her driveway and uses it while she's watching her kids during the quarantine. Anyway, I can't recommend NEDAC rebounders enough. They are a worthwhile investment in your health and overall well-being, especially now. If you are interested in a mini trampoline, please don't buy a cheap one. Those can be actually dangerous, and it is really worth uh, investing in a good quality one. And right now, if you use the coupon code just for Zestful Aging listeners, the code is Zestful, they are going to include a free cover for you. So go to NEDAC.com. It's N-E-E-D-A-K.com. And if you have any questions, you can contact me at ZestfulAging.com. I really am their biggest fan. Uh, you had, you know, we're talking about the pressures to look a certain way, to, uh, you know, dress a certain way, all of these things, the ideal, right? And I, um, I saw that you had a talk with Oprah, and you talked about actually... Um, there was a changing of the guard. Oh, yeah. At, at Good Morning America. And that, um, if I understand correctly, it had to do that you were aging out. Yeah. And so, and, you know, I really think that it, if there wasn't, if there hadn't been one guy who I personally think really wanted to divorce his wife, but that was too expensive. So instead he got a new young co-host and he was in charge <laughs> and he was convinced that the audience wanted younger, mm-hmm. hipper people. And the idea was not just to get rid of me. It was to get rid of both me and Charlie. And mm-hmm. and they got rid of both of us. Just they got rid of me first and then Charlie. And they brought in literally a 29-year-old lookalike of me. I don't know if you oh. remember her. I'm oh trying to remember her goodness. name. I don't even remember her name. Uh, I don't remember her name. Lisa something. Anyway, they lasted and they brought in a young, supposedly Charlie Gibson. I don't remember his name either, but that just shows you he was from Canada. She was from L.A. They lasted six months and the ratings dropped by four million within the first couple weeks. Wow. Are you following the lawsuit? I'm sure it's on hold now of the, the five women on New York one in New York City. Okay, so basically what happened is two of them are Emmy Award winners. They're, they've both, uh, all of them have put on extensive journalism time, won awards, love them. They're like New York City's hometown cable station. I actually interviewed them. And the, well, the station got sold and they got uh, their airtime drastically decreased and they brought on these 20 some year old women and they're taking it to court as a gender equity case and if they win it will be the first case of its kind i guess i i guess i can't retroactively go back and complain (laughs) that's right that's right you know what um we all, pl- I mean, I played a part in it too. I had just got, I'd gone through a divorce, which is very public. And then five years later, I finally um, met my now husband. And, you know, you, you expend energy 
you know, falling in love and dating someone new and kind of reconstructing and redesigning this new life and getting married and the whole thing. And I think I was probably a little burnt out also mm, at that okay. time. Uh -huh. But, but if I had been a man, <laughs> I would have been staying after that show and going in in the afternoon, uh, like post-mortem meeting in the corner office. And I think it's a mistake sometimes that women make. I wasn't going in those meetings. I was coming back to my office, doing all the big interviews I had to do, getting briefed on tomorrow's interviews, and then going home to be with my kids and making mm -hmm. sure Charlie didn't have to do that. His wife did that. And so I think if I had been going in those meetings and speaking up for myself and tooting my own horn and giving my ideas, it probably would have gone a different way. So, you know, we play and I always say to women when I'm doing, you know, success speeches, don't hide out in your office or your cubby, because if you do, nobody will see you and you won't be in their minds the next time a great assignment comes along or a, a, a promotion comes along. If you aren't out there talking and being part of, you know, giving ideas, because we have a tendency to do that where men are just raised differently. You know, they come from the locker room and, and from a sports field where they had to knock three guys out of the way to get to the, end, <laughs> to, get to the other end of the field. It's just a different upbringing. Yes, certainly is. Certainly yeah. is. Let me ask you about uh, your breast cancer. Um, and I'm curious about it because we talked earlier about you being so out in the open and so warmly received and loved uh, by America. Did that kind of warmth and connection with your, your audience uh, help you feel that you wanted to share this experience? Or what was, I know you've talked a little bit about it, but I'm really curious to get behind, like, what was the motivation? Because you did something so radical. Yeah. These days, it doesn't seem as radical because everybody's talking about everything on Twitter. But back in the day, showing up on People Magazine yeah, six, with- Six like, years ago. It, yeah. It was, and you're right, though. Even just six years ago, things were really different. But I'm going to tell you what I think my real inspiration was for that. Um, to be very honest, I was worried about, um, well, first of all, I was worried about out being outed. I thought I want to just put a pair of sunglasses on and a hat and sneak in and out. Then I realized that's just not going to happen. Like you can't do that when you're a public person. So, And then I also was told I was going to have to have like a year-long aggressive chemo. So I realized it was completely different. And... Um, about 24 hours in, I was going to bed the next night, and I was thinking, you know what, Joan? You've shared practically everything, every personal thing about your life since you started on this show, your babies, your pregnancies, your marriages, your divorce, your kids. I mean, just every chapter. And here is a chapter where you could really help a lot of people. Not only that, my dad was a cancer surgeon. And I always thought I would be a doctor when I grew up. It was only going to work in a hospital like the, the summer before going away to college that made me understand that scalpels <laughs> and shots were not going to be part of my future life. I so, I be, so I majored in psychology. But here was this opportunity, unusual as that may seem, it was an opportunity dropped into my lap where mm -hmm. I could take that baton from my dad and I could walk forward and I could carry on his legacy 
and go out there. I could learn as much as I could learn and go out there and disseminate this information, inspire and motivate women to get their mammograms, to know whether they also needed an ancillary test, to understand that they do need to do their self-exams, all these things. And I mean, once I had that thought process, my entire frame of mind changed. My entire focus changed. Mm -hmm. And it instead of being a victim of this, I became like less of a patient and more of an advocate. I see. I became and I, a I thriver. Think and yes, I can see that. And I would guess just sort of thinking about it and, and, and sort of knowing what the cancer journey is like, it might have also been really helpful for you to focus on that rather than, you know, it's really hard to describe what it feels like to have chemo because it's so awful. And I, I it sounds like you did this really beautiful job of like, how can I make this as good as it could possibly be? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I remember people telling me that you go into cancer, um, one person, you come out another. And I think that's true. I think you come out of it way more appreciative of everything in life from the sunrise to the sunset and everything in between. And I also became much um, more educated about my health and my body because when you start putting chemo in your body, I mean, I couldn't read enough books one after another. I wanted to understand cell growth. I wanted to understand what certain things that I ate, um, what kind of an impact that they would have on a cancer tumor. I worked with a, a nutritionist who specialized in cancer patients, and I learned so much about my body and about my health and about how my thyroid, my pancreas and my liver worked, all these things that I started getting incredibly excited and passionate about sharing this information with others. And I'll be honest, I'd been working on a book for a few years and the title had been Live Younger Longer. All of a sudden I realized I know why I never finished that book because it wasn't supposed to be that book. It was supposed to be how to live healthier and happier longer. And I need to share this information. I took out that manuscript and retooled it. And I just became super excited about helping hmm. other women understand how their bodies work and how our bodies change and why they change and what we can do about it. And so, I mean, interestingly, my cancer diagnosis changed the trajectory of my life in a lot of really important ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I was thinking about what you have overcome and, um, you know, in terms of just even as a young teenager losing your dad. Yeah. Um, and there's been a lot of challenges, some of which we don't maybe even know about, but I'm thinking about the cancer. I'm thinking about uh, there's been several profound traumatic experiences and you are so resilient. Well, you know what, Nicole, I watched my mom when my dad died. She, my mom was 41 years old and I was a like preteen. I was 13. And I watched her main, find a way to maintain her resilience in the face of that kind of adversity. Uh -huh. So through something horrible, I learned something very important. 
I learned as we kind of put our lives back together, the importance of the team that we created and having a sense of safety and security and strength when we weren't just that one little person worrying about it, but that when we were a team and my mom made sure that we thought that way. My mom was a person who always gave me these positive affirmations. You're going to be able to do anything you want to do. No matter what you try, you're going to make it. I see your name up in the lights. Hit your wagon to a start. It was like living with... Gandhi, <laughs> like living with Gandhi, you know? Oh, Gandhi, yeah. And, um, but that made a big impact on me. I mean, each thing I've gone through, you know, even divorce, as horrible as it was going through it in the midst of the public eye, I learned things from it, you know? I learned how to decide that I wasn't going to be mad anymore, that that, that, that wasn't going to serve me, and that I was... That was a decision I made one day when I got a call from my ex-husband, which always ended up in a fight. And I just said, nope, that's not going to happen this time because from now on, you are not investing that kind of stress into this ever again. I literally made a decision. You're very intentional. And it sounds like you saw your mom do what I I think is just so incredible is she was able to withstand that kind of loss. And it sounds like some, some message was you don't have to give up your power. Right. You still have the power to make decisions, even though you're in great pain. And I think I learned by what we went through as a family and watching my mom that I always wanted to be in charge of my life. I always uh-huh. wanted to be in charge of my financial well-being. And that, you know, that just, all these different things guide you through your life. That doesn't mean you're going to make more mistakes, but... You know, I am definitely an intentional person. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple things. My husband always says that the page out of the Joan London playbook is whenever anyone asks you to do something, just say yes. And then then go figure out how to do it. (laughs) And that's how I've lived my life. And people say, man, look at all these things you've done. I said, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was because I said yes. Mm -hmm. And I've just been completely open to every opportunity that's come my way. And then, you know, the the other thing is that um, perseverance and, you know, you can have perseverance, but you also have to be able to roll with the punches. <laughs> you really do. And, you know, there's a great book. It's called um, Stand Like Mountain, Flow Like Water by Brian Luke Seward, um, where you, you got to to own yourself and what you think is important but at the same time, you got to be like, when water hits a rock, you got to be able to go around the rock. Mm-hmm. You know, flexible. And that, You're yeah. talking about being able to obsess things and, and, you know, we use the word intentional and, and figure out like, what's the best plan now? Yeah. And mm-hmm. you know what? You can invest yourself completely in one plan. And if in the end that doesn't really work, then, then go on to a different plan. And if somebody decides they want to replace you, Make a new plan for yourself. Um, I'd always been really afraid of public speaking. So when I when I left GMA, I went on the road with Tony Robbins. I am living walking proof that you can turn a total fear into a total passion because I now do, you know, with pandemic excluded, I do about 30, 35 speeches a year. 
It's a huge part of my career, a huge part of my income, and I love every second of it. Mm, it sounds like it gives you energy. It's energizing. It does. For Being you. in front of an audience where you know you are making an impact, where you can see women's faces that oh. you know you 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 inspired them and you motivated, or at the very least, you entertained them. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that's like the coolest thing in the world. Writing mm. books. This is my tenth book that I just wrote, and my husband always says. You know, if in the long run, you you probably could do two speeches and make as much money as you make and on that book that you just spent five uh, years on. And I said, I know, but mm-hmm. it's just not the same. The idea that somebody has your book on their nightstand mm-hmm. and they're reading it and they're being impacted by it. There's just oh, this yes. incredible feeling that makes you, you can't write another one right after. I mean, some people do, but to me, I feel, I always feel like somebody just, I just squeezed every last <laughs> drop out of my brain and I'll never be able to write another book again, ever, you know? Mm-hmm. And you know what? A book agent years ago, may you rest in peace, when I did a book and was really super successful and then the publisher came back and said, we want another book. And I went to him and I said, I don't know what, like, what am I going to write? I've got this huge book deal and I don't know what I'm going to write. And he looked at me and he said, you are going to write that which you want to know more about. And it's always been true. It's always been true. You know, I wanted to know more about my body and cancer. I wrote Had I Known when I was going through a huge kind of like when I was turning 40, I decided that I had to get my fitness together. And I worked with nutritionists and trainers and lost a lot of weight. And literally, it wasn't just losing weight. I literally transformed my life, which changed also changed the trajectory of my life. So I wrote Healthy Cooking and Healthy Living and Grow. I was about to have the twins. And I got together with a, a pediatric nutritionist. Once again, it, this is an opportunity that just came my way. Do you want to help on writing a book called Growing Up Healthy? Yeah. <laughs> and I hadn't even made the announcement yet that we had twins coming in like three months. So, you know, you do. And here I am now. What do I want to know more about? Aging. You know, so that that's it. And so I'm not exact. I'm, I'm already working on the next book, which scares the hell out of my husband. <laughs> but you know what? I love it. It's great. You pick it up. You get all inspired one day you know you're writing a book you'll see Mm. um and then you might not have a thought in your head for a while but that's okay then you like regroup and sometimes it morphs and it changes a little bit as you're doing it it's quite a creative process it sounds like that's what happened with this book why did i come into this room that you've talked about it morphing and it getting really you know it is real and it's funny you know, I've never written a book with this kind of sense of humor, but come on. You can't write about <laughs> hot flashes and leaky bladders if you yeah. don't do it with a sense of humor. But I, you know, I worked with an editor who was kind of prim and proper because they brought her on because they thought, this is Joe Linden. And like, I, her name was Hope, of course. Uh-huh. Then I worked, but I also worked with a comedy writer that I brought in. Because, oh, oh because, my goodness. Because I, I knew her because she used to write for Joan Rivers. And a couple of times I asked Joan Rivers for, um, you know, little quotes on the back of my book. I remember for a book I did called Wake Up Calls, the quote was, this book is more uplifting than a wonder bra. Well, this, <laughs> <laughs> this woman 
um, was the one who actually wrote that. And so I brought her in. And I said, every now and then I just run into a wall and I know there's something funny there. So I, felt, I told my publisher that the whole time I felt like I had the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other oh, shoulder. God. And the devil would say, go ahead, say it, say it. <laughs> Who cares Who's what people stop think? You, right? Just say it. And then I would have the angel over here saying, you can't say that. You're John London. And all I say is you have to get the book and read it to know who won most of the time. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> and you know, it's so interesting because aging enables us to be more of ourselves and totally. not as self-conscious. So there's, I can see there is this like parallel process happening for you. Like, hell yeah. 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 Go ahead, say it. What's yeah, going to matter at this point? So what are they going to do? Fire me? <laughs> oh my goodness. So lovely. Joan, what is the legacy that you would like to leave? Ah, uh, the legacy is to always remain classy. I, the last words in my book are, not to give it away, but if that little dash, you know, they, that wonderful poem about the dash, the, the dash between the day you were born and the day you die, what, should, what, what does that mean and what are the words below that? And I said, mine will be classy, sassy, and a bit badassy. <laughs> oh, perfect. How perfect. So lovely. So so zestful. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. How's yes. that? How's that for a zestful yes, ager? That's a zest <laughs> you get the award for, for the zestful <laughs> ager. My goodness. And I know people listening all over the world know you, uh, love you, and may have uh, you know, maybe, you know, they're not thinking about these things right now, but they're going to be reminded, where can they find you? Where's the best place to learn about what you're doing and all the wonderful advocacy you're doing for women? Well, I do have my website, joanlondon.com. Okay. Of course, it's all about healthy living. Uh, mm -hmm. And it has all the different projects I work on. Um, they can find um, my new book, Why Did I Come Into This Room, on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Simon Schuster, uh, everywhere. everywhere. Um, and, and in their bookstores, if they're allowed to walk into a bookstore. Mm -hmm. I dream about that, about a woman walking into a bookstore somewhere. By the way, I've had a number of men read this book and call me up because they're like the husbands of the women, women that have read it, and say, you know what? My wife was kind of surprised when she saw me reading this, but first of all, it's really funny mm -hmm. and really enjoyable, but it also taught me about my wife. And I think, and I've, I think I've, I look at her in a whole different way. My daughters, who are in their 30s, my older daughters, they said, Mom, this is like a playbook. Like, I know you kind of wrote it for women over 40, but for a young woman in her 20s or 30s, besides it just being fun and funny, it's like a playbook. It's like knowing what your mom is going through and knowing what to expect as you go through the decades. So I hope it is a playbook um, out there for a lot of people, but mostly I, I hope they just enjoy my humor. <laughs> mm. Oh, my goodness. And all the stories that my husband said, you can't tell that story. <laughs> 
Yeah, you've got a little rebel in you, I think. I'm hearing this rebel come out. Yeah. That is so great. Well, I so appreciate you sharing yourself so honestly and openly with us and your audience and 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 telling us the behind the scenes, you know, stories. So so fun to hear and wish you the best of luck with all your advocacy. I, I saw that you're, t- you know, you're really fighting for family and medical yeah, paid leave in act. Washington and before Congress and all that good stuff. Well, Thank this you. has been great. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Nicole. Oh, it was my pleasure, Joan. Good luck on the book. And uh, we're going to be keeping a close eye on your next projects. You got it. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, you know it's going to be a fun interview when your guests start talking about boobs. Uh, What a fun and intimate interview with Joan. She, of course, has been interviewed millions of times, and uh, I was very... um, Uh, mindful that I wanted to see if I could get kind of underneath some of the stories and the things that she has talked about so many times uh, to do something a little unique, a little different. And I think I managed to do that to cut through some of, you know, she has a script, she has a lot of things that people want to hear about. um, And I just wanted to see if I could get a little bit around that and have her talk in a way that was more uh, perhaps spontaneous um, or vulnerable. So uh, I, I felt that we were able to do that and have a good laugh. She's such a lovely person and I really enjoyed uh, the time I spent with her and I hope you did too. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. Uh, We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the 
clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest. 